All right, you have a Bible, we're going to turn to Zechariah chapter 1, please. Zechariah chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 7 through 17, and the message is entitled, God Rules Over the World. Listen to Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, and Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 says, Remember this, and show yourselves men, recall the mind, O ye transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. We should just close the Bible and go home. He's in control. No one can thwart him. He's aware of everything, yet allowing free will, something that drives us crazy. God is about to reveal many things to Zechariah. We want to examine the first vision of the four horses that unfolds in a threefold movement here. Allow me to read verse 7 through 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in a hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. And then I said, O oh my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees, or the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Then the angel of the Lord answered and says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease, for I was a little angry, and they helped, but they evil with evil intent. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and the surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion, and I will again choose Jerusalem. And so, the first vision of the four horses unfolds for us in three movements here. First, we have the revelation of the vision in verse 7 and 8. Second, the explanation of the vision, verse 9 through 13. And thirdly, the interpretation of the vision, verse 14 through 17. We are not left to our own interpretation. It's all interpreted for us. So it's not subjective. We would have come up with doozies if we would have been left to ourselves. Let's begin here with the revelation of the vision, 7 and 8. Look at verse 7. The prophet Zechariah received his first vision from God. Mark it well. The prophet recorded the date on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, the, um, in the second year of Darius. The 11th month of the Jewish calendar is February. The Jews have a religious calendar, as you know, commemorating the Passover, the Exodus. Um, 
in April, the first month of the religious calendar. Then you have a civil calendar. So the two different ones. Now notice the day was towards the end of the month on the 24th day. And the vision took place at this point, if you compare it with Haggai, three months after his first prophecy that he called to repentance. So here in chapter 1 of Zechariah, verse 1, and you compare it to 7, we have here a difference of three months after his first one. That first one is a call to repentance, kind of lining up with the repentance that we just finished seeing Haggai in the first chapter. But also five months, 23 days after Haggai's first prophecy, and four months and three days after Haggai's second prophecy, and two months after Haggai's third and fourth prophecy. These guys are like Twinkies. They go together. And they've come back to rebuild the temple. People are discouraged. They're being opposed. God is for them. This is what God wants them to know. In spite of all that's going on, He is for them. It's interesting, the flood of Noah that's recorded is recorded in a 360-day biblical year. If you compare Genesis 7-11 with 8-14, it is 371 days, uh, one year and 11 days. That means that it is computed on the very same calculation as the 70 weeks of Daniel in Daniel 9:24 through 27. The prophetic year of calculation is 360, not the Gregorian 365. Keep that in mind. Now, notice the year was the second year of Darius. This is the same Darius uh, that Haggai had um, marked his prophecies by in Haggai 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, the Persian Gentile king, again, is by the Gentile king because the time of the Gentiles has begun with the head of gold Babylon. The Jews are not in control now, but the months are still by the Jewish calendar. So this is Darius the king, his task piece that ruled from uh, 521 to 486. Right now, at this point, the second year is 520 B.C. The name Darius means um, Lord. Now, notice the prophet articulated the common expression, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The expression simply means that God made himself known to the prophet. Divine revelation. His will, his purposes. The prophet Haggai used it four times, as you remember. Uh, it should be fresh in our minds. Haggai 1, 1, 2, 1, 2, 10, and 2, 20. And so it's always important to mark these things because God goes out of his way to have these things articulated and stated so that we know this is not just a man's imagination or his own thing, but it's directly coming from God. Now notice the prophet's genealogical line is given. Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, the prophet. Uh, the name Zechariah means uh, Yahweh remembers. Seventy years of captivity, punishment is over. God remembers. He told Noah he would never destroy the world by a flood. God remembers every time he sees the rainbow. Right? God doesn't forget, except your sins, which is something interesting. There are over 30 men that are named uh, Zechariah in the scriptures. Um, this is a contemporary with Haggai, as we've seen. In fact, in chapter 2, 4, when we get there, um, he is called by the angel, a young man. So he's younger than Haggai. And that's the only way we know. Now, Zechariah is the 11th uh, minor prophet, the second of three post-captivity prophets. Haggai was the first, he's the second, and then we're going to get with Malachi next. Now, he is believed to be Zechariah that Jesus accused the fathers of slain between the temple and the altar. That's recorded in Matthew 23, 35. Uh, we noted in our study of Haggai that Zechariah was in the line of, uh, of uh, King David. In Joshua of Aaron, the priestly line. But now here, Zechariah is also 
holds the title of prophet. Now, there have been men in the past who held two of three titles, king, priest, and prophet, uh, but no one ever held all three. That was reserved for Jesus Christ, king, priest, and prophet completely. Now, notice Zechariah is the son of Berechiah, which means Yahweh blesses. Again, there are several people named Zechariah. This one is here, um, the father of Zechariah here. And uh, Zechariah is the grandson of Idu, the prophet. So these men come from a long line of godly men, uh, though the past generations have been unfaithful to God, and now they have been chastened. God is now for them, and he's revealing himself to them. Again, several names by that uh, of the family line. Now, his family line is confirmed in Ezra 5.1 and 6.14, and that is a good book to read at the same time because it goes hand in hand. Later on, Nehemiah comes in to build the walls of the city. Now, notice the prophet Zechariah received the first of several visions uh, and prophecies in verse 8. These are interpreted in different ways by different commentators as you read them. Some uh, say that there are only seven visions making the difference between normal prophecies and that which is declared to see with the eye, which would be visions. And you have them recorded as that in chapter 1, verse 6, 18, 2, 1, 3, 1, 4, 1, 5, 1, and 6, 1. And the rest are just not stated as seen, but just prophetic utterances. A vision is while you are awake, whether it be night or day, while a dream is while you're asleep. There's the distinctions. Others say there are eight visions interpreting chapter 5 as one instead of, or seeing them as two rather than one. But if you examine chapter 5 closely, the vision is of a curse and wickedness, and it's all one. So I, I see it that way now. And still there are others who break all of them up, and they come up with ten, uh, not distinguishing between them, but just make them ten. Uh, J. Vernon McGee, the late J. Vernon McGee, did it this way. Again, uh, it depends you want to, the way you want to approach it. I think it's important that you mark the distinction when it is a vision or it is a dream or it is regular prophecy, just to help you to understand the distinction between them. So I go with the seven, and um, and I make a distinction between them. Now, all are received in one night. So he was a busy man. Uh, five months exactly after the rebuilding of the temple was resumed. And you can cross-reference this with Haggai chapter 1 verse 15 with Zechariah chapter 1 here all the way to chapter 7 uh, or verse 7 to all the way to chapter 615. That's where you get the seven uh, visions. Now, look at verse 8. The first of seven visions is a four Horses here. Zechariah came under the influence of the Spirit of God. I saw by night, he says. The sword saw means to perceive or to make something visible to him. And the vision was during the night notice, but it should not be considered or called a dream. It's a vision just that happened by night. But um, one of the titles for a prophet used to be a seer. And you find this in 2 Samuel 9, 11 and 18, 19, when Saul went to see Samuel about the lost donkeys, he's called the seer. First uh, Chronicles 21, 9, the prophet Gad is called David's seer because they could see things into the future that God revealed to them or things known. Now, notice Zechariah began to observe what God was revealing to him. 
The phrase, and behold, is indicative of the suddenness and something of uh, uh, appearing, catching the eye of Zechariah. It's almost like if you're driving down the freeway, you say, look, look at that. It just catches your eye and there's a suddenness that appears. Now, he saw a person, notice, a man riding on a red horse. Red horse is symbolic of war. You have the horse of the apocalypse. You have the red, the white horse, which is a, a false piece by the Antichrist. You have the red horse of war. You have the black horse of famine and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you have this through the scriptures. Now, notice he saw them in a wooden ravine. It stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. That's what the word hollow means, a ravine. The myrtle tree is native to Israel. You find it all through the scriptures. And the ravine could be uh, the valley of Hinnom or of Kidron because the prophecy here is relating to Zion and Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. Um, he saw others, notice, behind him, there were horses, red, sorrel, and white. The sorrel is a tanny, yellowish, almost dirty bay or speckle, symbolic of strength. And um, the white can be either peace or victory, depending on the context. Here, most likely, is victory in the fact that God has also been victorious over his judgment, but he's also brought peace to Israel. So it's kind of a combination. Um, prophecy is it's amazing, and people reject the Bible without considering that it's the only book that contains prophecy. I want you to consider the chance factors of the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 26, those of you that were with us, remembers the prophecy of Tyre, how it would be destroyed and then it would be scraped like a plate and a causeway would be built and Alexander the Great fulfilled that. And um, Dr. Stoner, um, in his book, Science Speaks, on page 70 to 80, estimated the chance of Ezekiel having spoken this prophecy by his own knowledge and having it all come to pass as the following, those of you that are math whiz, okay? One in three times five times 500 times 10 times five times 20. It's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, this is one in 75 million or one in 7.5 times 10 to the seventh power. In other words, there's no chance it could happen by chance. If Ezekiel had looked at Tyre in his day, he says, and had made these seven predictions in human wisdom, these estimates mean that there would be, uh, have been only one chance in 75 million of them all coming true. There is no way. Prophecy is an amazing thing in that God tells us of things before they happen, so when they happen, you and I I can say this has to be and is God. Every person has to come to a decision about prophetic scripture. The predictions of events, um, the uh, occurrences, the names of people specifically like Cyrus 150 years before his birth. Uh, and many other things that are so specific like the uh, prophecy of the 70 week to Daniel. 483 years to the day based on a 360 day uh, biblical year from um, March 14, 445 BC. Our gave the command to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and it lands on April the 6th, 32 AD, exactly to the day. Now, what are the chances of that? By the way, Jesus confirms that. He says, if you would have known this day, the things that were prepared for you, now they're hidden from your eyes. When he rode to Jerusalem on the triumphal entry on the donkey and they rejected him. Wow. There's only three possibilities. <clears throat> 
for our consideration. First, the Bible was just and is a product of a group of men who were faultless, perfect, endowed with supernatural powers to see into the future um, by special whatever. And um, therefore, there's supernatural agencies that we know nothing about. Second, that the Bible was written by mere men with no greater gift than Plato, Socrates, or Demosthenes. Therefore, the predictions are just one big coincidence. The third is that the scriptures and prophecies are inspired by God. They're inerrant, infallible in every subject, in every matter, in every topic that it addresses. I believe the third is the only logical and rational one based on the evidence. There's another way it can happen. Now, you have to take into consideration a few things when you're thinking about this, about the Bible. You have to consider that the Bible was written over a 1,600-year span. You have to consider the 40 different authors are included through the 1,600-year span, from kings, fishermen, statesmen, tax collectors, herdsmen, military generals, and others. You have to consider the fact that it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and containing 66 books, and none of them contradict each other. You have to consider the central theme, purpose, that runs from Genesis to Revelation with the red thread of one person, Messiah, to come for the redemption of lost man, the forgiveness of sins through death and resurrection and glorification. Wow, that's a lot to consider. (laughs) Based on that, the only you can conclude is that the Bible is God's inspired word received and recorded by men who were carried along by the Spirit of God, directed, not of their own origin or impulse, therefore the prophecies that they declared and the scriptures that they recorded are holy scripture, inerrant and infallible, as Second Timothy 3:16 and 17, that all scriptures given by inspiration of God literally expire from God. Profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And even in Second Peter chapter 1, 20-21, said that these men were not moved or by their own impulse or origin, but carried along by the Spirit of God. So what you have is the assurance of God's inerrant, infallible word. I believe this is the only correct answer. The revelation of the vision here was from God. Very clear. Second, look at verse 9-11. through 11, Or 9-13, through 13, we have the explanation of the vision. In 9 through 11, the prophet Zechariah was completely stumped by the vision. So it's not by intellectual understanding or because you have a PhD or you're so smart and brainy. Zechariah asked the first question. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? He addressed the man riding on the red horse, calling him my Lord. It can be used for one's master or it can be used a form of respect. I believe this is the one. I believe he's very aware that he's seen things in the spirit. This is an angelic host he's going to tell us, and he's uh, respectful. Um, even though Zechariah had no understanding about what he saw, he knew that this was God's revelation directly from him. He clearly understood they were horses, but as to their significance and meaning, he had no idea whatsoever. The book of Zechariah is symbolic with signs, visions, and symbols that for the most part are interpreted for us by an angel. 
So we are not left to ourselves. The interpretation is given to us. Now, look at 9 still. Zechariah received his first answer from an angel. So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. What a relief. The identity of the one speaking with Zechariah, notice, indicative by, uh, indicated by his own words. The angel, he says, who spoke to me. Angels often took on the form of, of a man, human form in the Bible, as you know. Two angels came down with the Lord Jesus Christ to visit Abraham. And then the two went on to Sodom and Gomorrah to pronounce judgment in Genesis 19. The angel responded to the question of Zechariah, revealing, notice, he would give him understanding. He said to me, I will show you what they are. God is giving it to the angel. The angel is giving it to him. You see it also in the gospel and in the revelation of John. You know, God gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to his angels. The angel gave it to John. John gave it to us. Chain of command. Now, Angels are ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. Uh, Hebrews 1.14, God uses them. Do you know how many times the word angel appears in the book of Revelation? Fifty-three times. Fifty-three times angels are involved in the pouring out of God's judgment on this earth. And giving understanding to John. What are these? You don't know, John? No, I don't know. <laughs> Daniel was praying, seeking God, knowing the captivity was almost up, according to the book of Jeremiah. And as he was speaking in prayer... Um, the angel Gabriel, the man Gabriel said, but he's an angel, reached him about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision, Daniel 9, 22 through 23. What falls in 24 to 27? The 70 weeks of Daniel. Wow. Concerning the people of God. Israel. Not the Gentiles. Now, Zechariah noticed then heard the man who was standing among the myrtle trees in verse 10. He is probably another angel. It can get a little confused. you got to follow real close. It says, And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, He identified um, to Zechariah here who the horses are. These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. The one commanding these horses is the covenant God. Mark it well. All capital letters, Lord. The Lord has sent Yahweh. The Father, there's going to be two people here involved. Jesus Christ and the Father. Their mission is to patrol the activities of the nations of the world, listen carefully, in relationship to Israel, the people of God, to walk to and fro throughout the earth. This is the context of Zechariah. Israel, the people of God. Everything's in relationship to that. Prophecy is in relationship to Israel. Not New York, not Paris, not Moscow. Israel. Notice 11. Zechariah heard the report of the patrolling angel watchers about the condition of the earth. 
The angelic watchers of God directed the report to the, listen, the second person of the Trinity. Listen to what he says. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees. Now we've got the angel of the Lord stand by the myrtle trees. This is a pre-incarnation uh, or an appearance of Jesus Christ before the incarnation called a Christophany. We see it back in Genesis when he was one of the three angels that came to talk to Abraham to pronounce the birth of Isaac. And then the two went on to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, notice the report of the accomplished mission is stated to the angelic, uh, by the angelic horsemen here to the angel of the Lord and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. These are without doubt angels, God's watchers over the earth, revealing divine activity and control over the affairs of the world by the phrase to and fro throughout the earth. Now, there are angels in this room, good angels, bad angels. There's a warfare going on. You remember when Elisha was there in Dothan and, and the Syrian armies are surrounded him and his uh, servant uh, Gehazi got all freaked out. We're dead. He said, no, Lord, open his eyes. And he saw all the angels and the cherubs and everything else. And he says, they're more with us than with them. God's angels are ministering spirits for his people. Now, the present condition is peaceful notice. All the earth is resting quietly at this time, 520. The nations were carelessly at ease is what it's saying while Israel has suffered don't miss it Persia was the powerful world empire but soon it would be overthrown by Greece remember the image of, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar head of gold Babylon arms chest of silver uh, bronze meat of Persia then uh, silver brass the stomach Greece and then the legs iron Rome so the peace of the world is related to the peace of Jerusalem. Let me say that again. The peace of the world is related and in relationship to the peace of Jerusalem, which will only be fulfilled when Jesus Christ sets up the kingdom. It will never happen here until Christ returns. Ever. Ever. Of the 6,000 years of man's history that we have, we have only experienced 200 years of peace. And in those 200 years of peace, men were preparing to go to war again. Now, if you're a philanthropist, if you believe in the goodness of man, where are you getting your evidence from? From the figment of your own imagination. We are evil to the bone. We are bad news. Unless God transforms us. The nations would be shaken by Alexander the Great. The he-goat of Daniel's prophecy that conquered all the nations in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1 through 8. By the age of 30, he began. 33, he conquered them all. He sat down and cried. There was no more to conquer. Then he died one night having a drunken stupor, went home, and he died in pneumonia. Amazing. Notice verse 12 and 13. The prophet Zechariah heard the intercession for Jerusalem the focus of the vision, mark it well. The only inter the one interceding here is the pre-incarnate Christ, mark it well. Then the angel of the Lord answered and says, O Lord of hosts, his intercession is based on the tranquility 
at the present time that will soon be broken by Alexander. Daniel 2, Daniel 7. Two different perspectives. Daniel 2, how men see themselves as powerful images, head of gold, so on and so forth. Chapter 7, man, God sees the nations as beasts. <laughs> it's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? The intercession is to the Father, O Lord of hosts, all capital letters, the captain of the armies of heaven. He is defending Israel. He will fight for Israel. Make sure you mark that well. The covenant God who is the captain of the armies of heaven. The intercession is for mercy. How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? The question on the length of the time is not because he does not know it, for he is the second person of God. He cannot learn anything. He knows it. But it's for the sake of Zechariah. He is being informed, and he's going to be given the interpretation also, so he can proclaim it. The word mercy is a covenant word of compassion, pity, less than we deserve. If you're here and you think that you deserve better, then you want justice, supposedly. If you want justice, you'll never make it. If you get mercy, you get less than you deserve. If you take grace, you get what you don't deserve. Which one do you want? It's real simple. You don't have to have a PhD to know which one to choose. Now, the punishment of 70 years was over. They had repented in rebuilding the temple now. Zechariah 1.6 calls them the repentance. Haggai 1.12 calls them the repentance. They both record repentance. So now that sin is out of the way, God is dealing with them through the prophets. If you're here today and you're in sin and you're a Christian, then you need to take care of that sin before you can even think that God's going to answer you or hear you. If you're a non-believer, then you need to realize that you are dead in trespasses and sins. You need to repent of your sins and through the name of Jesus Christ who can forgive you and make you a brand new creature. No one else. Notice verse 13. The response to the intercession comes. God the Father responded to the angel. And the Lord Yahweh answered the angel who talked with me. This seems to be the first angel sitting on the horse. There are the other angels that we see on the other horses. And there is the angel of the Lord. So we distinguish those three categories that are given to us. God the Father expressed his compassion with good and comforting words. The word good means pleasant, agreeable. Comforting means compassionate. Who's he talking about? His people Israel. Jerusalem. Zion. You know, God gave us the information about creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He informed us. Because there's no way we could ever figure out the creation. And yet as we read, and it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. By the way, he's not trying to persuade you. It's just a statement of fact. This is what I did. And then he gives you the condition of the earth without form and void. Doctrine was upon the face of the deep. And then he gives you the first day, second, third, boom, 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 sixth, seventh, he rested. That he created everything. And in spite of that, men and women rather believe the evolutionary hypothesis. 
that everything happened slowly through a long process of time and the most simple cell evolved to the most complex cell. Well, the most simple cell is not that simple, so complex it couldn't happen with trillions of years on its own. So we've taken to believe scientific fiction and theories rather than subjecting ourselves to true Bible science. Bible science, I'm not, I mean biblical, uh, regular science, because science is this, defined like this. It can be observed and it can be duplicated. That's true science. The theory of evolution cannot, has never been observed and cannot be replicated in the laboratory. Never has, never will. So God gives us a very clear description of what he did to inform us. We have the choice to do one of two things, to accept it or reject it and go on our own way and invent our own philosophy about the world. And the majority of people choose to follow their own crazy imaginations. God revealed to Paul a prophetic event that will translate you and I to heaven. It's called the rapture. By the way, that's prophetic. It's a prophetic event. This involves only one generation that will escape death as we are glorified on the way up and we go up with the bodies that are in the grave right now of the old saints. To remove us from the period of time that Jesus said would be better to die than to live in those days. It's called tribulation and great tribulation. Jacob's trouble is regarding Israel again, Jeremiah um, 30 verse 7. Okay, it's for Israel. The tribulation period is to prepare Israel for her Messiah. Paul says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain to come in the Lord will by means not precede those who are asleep, meaning dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazzled together with the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. First Thessalonians four fifteen through 18. That's prophetic. Do you believe that? Because the rapture is being attacked from within the church big time now. And they're saying it's a recent doctrine and we really don't... The history doesn't... Be quiet. Like Samuel told Saul, be quiet. Jesus said, stop being afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for where I am. There you may be also. And if I come back, I come back to receive you to myself. Okay? So you must make a distinction between him coming back to receive us to himself and us coming back with him to set up the kingdom. I don't care about church history. It's corrupted. I care what the Bible teaches. Jesus taught the rapture, John 14, 1 through 3. Paul taught the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18, and other passages. So I could care less about church history. I could care less about the seminaries. I could care less about anything. I care what the scriptures teach. God gave to John the revelation of the last seven years in the island of Patmos to warn the world of the seven worst years that this earth will ever go through because he loves them. He doesn't want people to go through it. If God hated the world, he, he wouldn't tell us. We're here to warn them. We need to know the book of Revelation to be able to communicate to other people. The world will be deceived by the Antichrist. Who will rule the entire world. Look at our world today. You know what's going on in our nation? Two mindsets. American citizens. Global citizens. 
For America, against America. For America, for the world. I want to be an American citizen. I don't want to be a global citizen. But it's coming. All right? The Bible says it's coming. It's a little delay right now. A window time of mercy. All right? The wrath of God will be poured out on the ungodly world. Seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets. Horrible. Listen to me carefully. 66% at least, maybe a little bit more, of the population will perish during these seven years. Two of three Jews will die. We'll get to Zechariah, the latter chapters. Horrible time. Men and women will call on the mountains to fall on them rather than repent from their fornication, their sorceries, their drunkenness, and everything else. Now, do you believe the prophetic book of Revelation? Or do you say, well, you know, you really don't know. Once again, be quiet. It's the easiest book to understand. It gives you the table of contents in chapter 1. The things he saw, the things that are, the things that are hereafter. He gives us the table of contents so we don't mess it up. Because he knows we mess it up. All the revelation is given to us in interpretation. We're not left to ourselves. The repeated warning to the seven churches as he who has a near let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Revelation chapter 1 and 2. Are you listening? Are you hearing? Jesus said, take heed what you hear and how you hear. Wow. The explanation of the vision was to inform what? The prophet of God. Third and last movement, verse 14 through 17, the interpretation of the vision. In 14, the prophet Zechariah came to understand the condition of the heart of God at the present. Verse 14, God revealed his love for the nation of Israel. Mark it well. Zechariah was to proclaim to the people with all the authority of God. I teach to you, and people blow their mind how I teach. I teach with full authority of God's authority. These are his words, not mine. He says, his soul, the angel who spoke with me, said to me, proclaim, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Whoa. When you're commanded to speak in the name of God, that what you're going to say, God said he's going to do, you don't have to apologize. And you certainly don't have to be intimidated. The phrase, the Lord of hosts, again, the captain of the armies of heaven, the one fighting to protect who? Israel. The phrase appears 52 times in this book. The phrase says the Lord appears 22 times. You think it's coincidence that God repeats himself that many times? That's a warning to everybody who would come against Israel. Those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. Genesis 12, 3. It's still in effect, ladies and gentlemen. Our nation got a little reprieve. The last administration was against Israel continuously, insulting, degrading. Before the president came and was inaugurated, he called Netanyahu. They came to an agreement. Day of inauguration, we received the blessing from God reign. Stock market has gone up. Now, the Antichrist is still coming. Still is going to get worse. Just a little window time of mercy. All right? Let's not get crazy, but let's acknowledge it, okay? It's real simple. Notice 14, still Zechariah was to proclaim to the people God's yearning love for his city. His city. 
I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. The passion of God over Jerusalem is identified with the, by the word zeal, which means jealous, envious. But not the way you and I understand it. We get envious and jealous, you know, we get, oh, I want to knock somebody's teeth out or something like that. It's sinful. But the pleasure of God is with purity, is love with, with purity. It's over Zion, also indicated by the phrase zeal, great zeal, in fact. Immense, radiating love for the mountain of the city of David, where the temple sits. The city, he just loves it. He has angels on the wall watching over it all the time. The key verse and theme of the book, let me give it to you. It's found in Zechariah 8.2. It says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. I am zealous for her. God is in love with Israel, Jerusalem, and Zion. Jerusalem is the most mentioned city of the Bible. 776 times. Babylon, the second most mentioned, 264 times. They are arch enemies. Look at 15. God revealed his displeasure with the nations. Zechariah was to proclaim to the people the position of God against the nations. Mark it well. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. The superlative exceedingly angry describes the incredible magnitude of God's wrath with the Gentile nations. This includes the past, the present, and the future for the anti-Semitism, hatred, and persecution of the Jew and the nation of Israel. The UN is on top of his list. Then other nations, guaranteed. The reason was because they were at ease, quiet and secure and careless, relishing in the conquest of Israel and self-glory. We have seen the hatred, the opposition attack on the nation of Israel since its birth of 1948, just hours after they declared their independence. England had betrayed Israel and prepared the Arabs to attack them. Wow. The anger of Yahweh towards his people was right and just, chastening them for 70 years. Notice he says, I was a little angry. Now you know exactly what God means if you're a parent. Your son and daughter does something and you're angry at them and you deal with them. But after you've dealt with them and there's repentance, it's over, right? The reason for the great anger of God against the nation was that he used them to chasten his own people. But they had no mercy and afflicted more suffering on them beyond God's measure. Listen to the words. And they help, but with evil intent. Mm. God says, I wouldn't go there if I was you. If you do, it's going to cost you. Look at the nation's. On how they conduct themselves against Israel. In Matthew 25, the judgment of the nations. When you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. On how they treated the Jew during the great tribulation. That's going to be the judgment on the world. First thing, Jesus comes back. Wow. Look at 16 and 17. The prophet Zechariah understood God was going to bless Jerusalem. 
Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am turning to Jerusalem, returning to Jerusalem with mercy. This was evident by the favor of Cyrus for having the remnant return. Jesus will make Jerusalem the capital of the world and the kingdom made. People may not like it. Tough. If, if Trump makes our embassy in Jerusalem, it's going to be great. Genesis 12, 3, there's going to be favor. It's not going to be, look, look as, as good to the rest of the world, but that's okay. God said his temple would be built. Now he's interpreting, okay? This is the interpretation of the vision. His temple will be built. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. It was completed four months later in the sixth year of Darius, Ezra 4.15 says. The kingdom temple will be built, the ultimate one. We have the plans, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. We went through it in detail when we studied Ezekiel. Then God would expand Jerusalem. And a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Their armies... I'm sorry, their enemies were trying to put fear in them and stopping the building, both of the temple and the city, as you look also the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem today has expanded way beyond the old walls of Jerusalem, the ancient times. You've been with us to Jerusalem. You're sitting on the Mount of Olives right here. We're looking on the Kidron. There's the old city. And way beyond it, it just expands over completely. You see, God's cities would again prosper, he says, and again proclaim, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. This is prophetic. This is the interpretation of what he's going to do for Israel. It goes not only to the present time he's speaking, but long term to the end, all the way to the millennial. The whole book of Zechariah. This was fulfilled during the Hasmonean princes of the Maccabean period that we hear about sometimes. The city of Haifa. Today is the hub of the modern technology of the nation and of the world to an extent. If you want to party, you go to Tel Aviv. You want to be religious, you go to Jerusalem. You want to deal business, you go to Haifa. Okay? That's the way it is. Now, God would again be in the midst of the nation of Israel. Listen carefully. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. Again choose Jerusalem. Underline that. The future blessing to come was sure, but ultimately will be fulfilled in the kingdom age. All the visions are related to the first vision that we're studying here of the nation and city of Jerusalem and expand on it. First to the near future, then ultimately to the far future of the kingdom age. The book of Zechariah is apocalyptic or apocryphal. In other words, not apocalyptic, meaning its nature and language expresses the ultimate conquest of God to set up his kingdom. But apocalyptical literature is very dark, it's gloomy, it's God destroying, defeating the armies of the world, but it has a positive outcome that he sets up his kingdom. Okay? The book of Revelation. Apocalypses. <laughs> There's the word. Okay? Now, listen to Jesus as he walked into the synagogue of Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to recover sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all of them were uh, in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, listen carefully, today this 
scripture is fulfilled in your hearings. Luke 4, 18 through 21. He's quoting Isaiah 61. What would you have done if you were sitting there? This crazy Jew, what is he? I knew, I, I saw him grow up. Who is he? You had one of two choices. You're Messiah or you're crazy. You have the same choices today, ladies and gentlemen. He said, I am the fulfillment of all prophecy. Wow. The prophecy that Israel would one day be a nation again has been fulfilled in our lifetime. May 14, 1948, Israel declares independent for the third time. After 1900 years without a homeland, they came back, preserved their religion, their name, their culture. They revived their language, Hebrew. No nation or culture or race has ever done that for more than two, three generations before being absorbed and totally disappear. Do you understand the chance factor of that being fulfilled? Read Ezekiel 36 and 37, the valley of dry bones, the mounds of Israel. He's going to bless them. Wow. Before Israel took it over, it was a swampland, mosquito infested. They bought it for pennies. They turned it into a plush garden. Listen to Matthew 24, 32, 35. Jesus speaking. Now learn a parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer's near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. When we saw the nation of Israel... After 1,900 years, be born uh, as a nation that marks a defining line prophetically. Not one yod or tittle will pass away. All will be fulfilled, whether we believe it or not. In 1967, Israel was attacked in what is known as the Six-Day War by Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia to destroy her. God protected her and gave her the victory. They gained the West Bank. The city of Jerusalem was taken for the first time, and the Jews were able to walk in and to go up to the Western Wall, that was known as the Wailing Wall, for the first time. Some of you have gone to Israel with us. You see the very bullets on that gate right there as they fought for it. The Temple Mount was taken. Moshe Dayan gave it in good faith to King of Jordan. He turned around and gave it to the PLO. It's in their hands. He did it in good faith. It's okay. God's in control. Israel in 1973 was once again attacked on Yom Kippur, their holiest day of the year, by Egypt, Syria, supplied by the old Soviet Union. But God once again did miraculous things and gave them victory. Israel um, took all the Sinai. Israel went as far down to Egypt. Israel took the Golan Heights. Israel was ready to light up Damascus with artillery fire until Kissinger stepped in and the salt talks. Israel gave back all the Sinai. Didn't have to, they did. They won't give back the Golan. They never will. God is in control. God is fighting for Israel. Are we saying that Israel, they do everything right? Nope. Listen, Israel, the people are back in the land, but they're not back with God yet. Read Ezekiel 37. There's the second part to that. Okay? They're in the land, but they haven't got back with God. They're secular. For the most part. But God's still working in there. 
Think of the many prophecies about Jesus that have been fulfilled. The place of his birth, Bethlehem. The fact that he would be raised at Nazareth. The fact that he would flee to Egypt when he was an infant. The fact that his ministry would be centered in the Galilee. That he would be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. 30 pieces of silver exactly. That all would abandon him as a shepherd was stricken that night. The scourging. The crucifixion. The resurrection. All of these are prophetic. They took place exactly. What do you say about that? What do you do with that if you're not a Christian? Or what do you do with that if you're a Christian? You say you believe it, but yet you're not obeying God's word. We have to deal with those issues, ladies and gentlemen. All these prophecies should encourage you and I, knowing that God has not lied, and therefore I can trust him for my sins and the forgiveness of those sins, for he cares for me that I walk with him. That I talk with him, that I sup with him, and that I look to him and him alone and understand what he believes and thinks and feels and is doing for Israel and for his church, two complete different entities. Now, if you believe in replacement theology that God is through with Israel, what do you do with the book of Zechariah? We throw it away? So all these schools like Fuller Seminary and APU, they teach them replacement theology. And so they just give all those blessings, all those things they attribute to the church. I wouldn't want to face God doing that. Are you kidding me? He's, Israel's the apple of his eye. Read the scriptures. The interpretation of the vision was to encourage the people of God. Are you encouraged? I hope so. I am. Because if you get your eyes on this world, it can be really depressing. You've got to keep your eyes on the Lord and the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen. The vision of the four horses has unfolded for us in this threefold movement. The revelation was from God. The explanation of the vision was to inform the prophet of God. And the interpretation of the vision was to encourage the people of God. When you read prophecy, you should be so encouraged that you are on the winning side. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Father, have us to rest in you. We thank you for your mercy, your word. We thank you for your people, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you don't know him, whether you're in the balcony, the floor, maybe over the internet, or maybe you're out there in the radio listening, God wants to forgive you. This is your prayer of repentance. If you want to be born again, he wants to forgive you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name.